Welcome to episode one of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. On this show, Pearland Chief Pilot Jim Payne will tell us what it was like to touch the edge of space and break the world altitude record for gliders while flying the Antarctic wave in Argentina. He'll also tell us about this summer's goal to break the 90,000 foot mark. And an interview with Richard Carlson, the chairman of the Soaring Safety Foundation, to talk about what they're doing to increase gliding safety. Everything from safety seminars to crash toolboxes. Closing the show will be one pilot's first-hand account of tangling with a massive thunderstorm over southwestern Ontario and living to talk about it. That's all on edition one of The Thermal. In September of 2018, Jim Payne and Tim Gardner set a world altitude record for gliders. Flying an Antarctic wave out of El Calafante, Argentina, they managed to reach a staggering height of 76,124 feet in their one-of-a-kind pressurized Perland glider. At the moment, the Perland team is preparing to once again fly the Antarctic wave and beat their own record and reach an astonishing height of 90,000 feet. I reached Perland chief pilot Jim Payne in Minden, Nevada. So, Jim, welcome to The Thermal. It's really great to have you on the show. My pleasure. I'd love to talk about soaring. Put us in the cockpit. What was it like to break the altitude record and reach the edge of space? Yeah, it was a pretty fantastic experience. The highlight of my flying career. As uh, we climbed higher, the vista, of course, became very fantastic. The view is the view you see from the camera shots. The sky is dark, and you can see the curvature of the Earth. It's a long ways down and very cold. However, because of the pressurization system, we don't have leaks in the cockpit. So in the cockpit, uh, with the clothing we were wearing, we were actually very comfortable. Talk to me about getting to that altitude. You're watching the altimeter wind up. You're You're a test pilot, but at the same time, you know you're achieving something that no other human being has achieved. Is part of you pinching yourself at that moment? Oh, you bet, you bet. Uh, you know, you're pretty busy because you're trying to maintain position in the best part of the wave. The visibility is a little bit restricted because the downwind side, or excuse me, down sun side of the airplane tends to have frosted windows. So we're using the windows on the sunny side to uh, look outside. But uh, you bet, I, I force myself every few minutes to look outside and enjoy the ambiance because as you said it's a phenomenal experience it's taken many many thousands of hours of effort on the part of many many people to prepare the airplane and get it to where we could fly it to that uh, altitude i know i was uh, live online watching you guys or following you guys as you were breaking that uh, that record and I think there were cheers all over the world while you guys were doing that live. It was a pretty incredible experience to, in our small way, to follow you guys as you were doing it. Yes, uh, you know, an intern created our virtual cockpit, and it's been a huge success for us. Uh, we were told that there were about 12,000 people that were watching as we uh, climbed to high altitude. Talk to me a little bit about this polar vortex, the Antarctic wave. I'm not sure if I've got the right term there, but talk to me about what makes it so special in that part of the world and how you take advantage of it. Well, the polar night jet or the polar vortex causes 
strong winds at high altitude, which allows the wave to propagate to these stratospheric levels. At Minden, for instance, we have some outstanding tropospheric waves, but they tend to die off above the tropopause, i.e. up in the stratosphere, because the winds die off at uh, altitudes above about 45,000 feet. In the wintertime at the poles, the polar night jet forms, and the winds above the tropopause, up to maybe as high as 130,000 feet, can be very strong. We've launched weather balloons that have shown 200 knot winds at 100,000 feet. 200 knot winds, that's, that's hard to imagine. We saw 160 knot winds on the day that we flew to 76,000. But it's not really a problem because your true airspeed is so high. As you go up in altitude and the density gets low, the true airspeed gets very high. At 76,000, the true airspeed is 4.5 times the indicated. At 90,000, it's 6.7 times indicated on a standard day. Yeah, I mean, this is stuff that most of us has re have read about academically as we're getting our glider pilots or pilot's licenses. But you've actually got to put that in practice because if you're not actually paying attention to that, you can wind up destroying the glider. Now, the Perlin has a design which takes into account the high true airspeeds. We have big mass balances on the rudder, elevator, and ailerons, and that reduces the probability of flutter. Have you gotten to those speeds? Have you felt anything? You know, you're, you're in the cockpit, you've got your hands on the, obviously on the controls. Have you come close where you're starting to feel that? Oh, no, no. Um, we actually have an excitation system in the airplane. And when we get to our test conditions, we actually run this system. And it has masses that vibrate between 2 and 20 hertz. Huh. We, we did an extensive ground vibration test. A company in San Diego put it like 128 accelerometers on the airplane and vibrated it on the ground. What this does is it gives them a map of all of the structural modes of the airplane. From that map, they have a computer program that predicts the structural modes at altitude. We record the results of these vibration tests and compare it to the model. So far, the airplane has had structural damping, which is equal to or better than the model. So that gives us confidence that uh, we're not going to encounter a flutter as we go higher. Huh. Well, that, that must be a, a, a very uh, satisfying point if you're going to go up there again. Well, absolutely. You know, that's our biggest concern, uh, flutter. The wing design of, of, of the Perlin, from, from what I've read, I mean, most gliders, you know, the kind of gliders I fly around Southwest Ontario or other guys around the world, they're, they're designed for speed. But your, your wing is designed to climb, right? Talk to me a little bit more about that. The shape of the airfoil that works at low altitude is not necessarily the same as an airfoil that works good at very high altitude. The Perlin is actually optimized for about 60,000 feet, and that's the best design compromise for climbing at low, medium, and high altitudes. So does and the wing look different compared to the wings of a you know, DG500? Is, is the profile different? To the you know, casual observer, you can't tell any difference. But if you took a plot of the airfoil coordinates, yes, it's quite a bit different. It's more like a model airplane airfoil than it is a 
DG1000. How do you guys get the right forecast to figure out when the wave is working? How how does that work? The you know the United States has a global forecast model, GFS, um, that actually is very good at modeling winds aloft. We have an organization called Weather Extreme, which is one of our sponsors, that takes that as initial condition. And they actually have a more detailed model that they run. It predicts uh, the wave. It gives us uh, two-dimensional and cross-sectional outputs that uh, forecast what might happen. And SkySight has been doing wave forecasts that uh, cover the area around uh, El Calafate when we're there. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's, that's the model that a lot of us are using now for cross-country. Exactly. And... Of course, we're there to fly in the wave, so any day that looks like there might be wave, there's nothing better to do than go fly and give it a good test. Yeah. Hey, d- describe the area down there. Describe El Calafate. Describe the mountains. Describe where you are for me so our uh, listeners can get an idea of what that countryside is like. The Andes in that area go to about 11, 12,000 feet. The airport is at 660 feet MSL. It's about 30 miles to the east downwind of the Andes. It's next to a very large lake, Lago Argentino. And it's actually very much like being at Minden. The mountains take most of the moisture out of the atmosphere, so it's very dry. And the local terrain has scrub brush on it, very much like the scrub brush you see between Minden and Ely. It uh, normally is uh, VFR. In the wintertime, we get a few clouds on some days. But uh, it's actually a pretty beautiful place, especially if you like mountains. Yeah. So Uh, as far as I know, there's no gliding club down there. So what do you guys do for Aerotow? How does that work out? This last season, we used a Grobe G520 Egret, which is one of the most interesting tow planes I've ever flown behind. It was designed as a spy plane in the 80s in Germany. And it is a turboprop. It's got a 108-foot wingspan. It's flat-rated, 750 horsepower to... <laughs> a, t- a turboprop tow plane. Absolutely. And uh, we towed last year eight times above 40,000 feet. Typical time to climb to 40,000 feet is about 50 minutes. Sorry, the, the tow plane towed you to 40,000 feet? Our highest tow was 45,000 feet, yes. <laughs> really? So and that... the, reason, the reason for doing that is we have discovered that the tropospheric wave and the stratospheric wave are not necessarily connected to each other. You need the tropospheric wave to perturbate the upper atmosphere but around the tropopause, there tends to be a zone where the lift is really weak. There's enough of a perturbation that causes a stratospheric wave. So we've discovered that if you tow up to the stratosphere, it's much easier to get into the really strong stratospheric wave. Hmm. So, and uh, it's actually very easy to tow because the tow tension is so high that uh, the glider wants to follow the tow plane. And uh, you know, climbing at 1,200 feet a minute, you're rapidly up out of the zone where any turbulence due to the terrain occurs and in fact during 
our last campaign. I think we flew about 35 hours while we were there. Um, it was uh, absolutely smooth the whole time, except for a couple toes below 5,000 feet. We encountered a little bit of turbulence. Hmm. Our uh, very first high toe, we're climbing out, and uh, something occurred we hadn't expected, and that was at about 25,000 feet, he started making a contrail. <laughs> so huh. it, it was not a big deal. Um, the, the exhaust from the engine comes out the left side, and so the contrail travels along the left side of the fuselage, and then as it gets into the downwash, it goes over the rope, but it descends fast enough that it goes below the sailplane. What do you guys have for a plan B if the pressurization system fails? Well, the system is designed to spacecraft standards. Typically, on an airplane, you have a safety factor of 1.5. So, you know, like wing bending, for instance. You know, the wing, if you got a 6G airplane, the wing is really designed to go to 9Gs before it breaks. For a uh, spacecraft, you use a safety factor of 3.0 so that you drive the reliability to extreme levels. So step one is you have this extremely strong system with a high safety factor. Right. Um, we're breathing 100% oxygen. We're using a rebreather system. The unique thing about the rebreather system is it traps the moisture from your breast. You don't get as much uh, moisture on the windows, which forms frost. And it reduces the amount of oxygen needed. And it keeps oxygen out of the cabin. Because we do the pressurization by having a cabin with a very low leak rate, and we just add air to make up for any leaks that we have. We try to keep the oxygen concentration below 25% because the fire hazard goes up as oxygen concentration goes up. It's kind of a continuum. Huh. You know, we don't want to have an Apollo 1 event. Yeah, and, and fire is not something most glider pilots uh, ever think about, really. Exactly. So, yeah, we have a fire extinguisher on board, and... Uh, you know, knock on wood, we've gone out of our way to uh, keep flammable things out of the cockpit. Um, for instance, Velcro, the fuzzy Velcro, mm-hmm. I understand, is, is a big fire hazard in a high oxygen environment. Static electricity. Yes. Huh. And uh, so we use dual lock instead of Velcro and that sort of thing. Huh, who would have thought? Yeah. Now, are you guys wearing shoots? We are not wearing personal chutes. The aircraft has a ballistic recovery chute, which uh, is designed to lower the whole aircraft, you know, like hang gliders do. Yep. Or and the uh, some Cirrus. Planes are yeah. And we also have a drogue chute in the tail. So if we did have, say, a leak start at altitude and we needed to make a really rapid descent, we have a drogue chute, which is uh, five meters in diameter, and it causes enough drag that we can essentially come straight down, not more than 80 knots indicated. So, so Really? So, so sorry, I'm trying to picture this. So emergency situation, you could deploy to drag chute at altitude and come down vertically? Yeah, so, so you're, you basically got this big tail chute coming out the back and you're hanging on the tail chute. Now, it turns out that from simulations, you have to roll the airplane if you, if you keep the wings level. Their plane tends to pitch up, and it doesn't come down as fast. But if you uh, do a roll, put the boards out, and have the chute out, you're basically coming down near vertical, and uh, it holds you about 80 knots indicated airspeed, which given the true airspeed, you know, it takes like four minutes to get down from 90,000 feet to below 50. 
at, at lower altitudes where the air's thicker, you can actually come down faster just by judging the chute, leaving the air brakes out full, and then pushing the airspeed up to like 110 indicated. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Wow, you guys really have this figured out. Been a lot of uh, thought. We've got this huge risk analysis that we've done. So we basically tried to figure out anything that go wrong, you know, what would cause it to go wrong, how do we prevent the fault from occurring, and then if it does occur, how do we mitigate uh, the result? So yeah, I mean, your life's on the line at the same time, so it's it's got to be well I mean, thought out. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. But but it's it's exactly what the Air Force and the NASA do when they're doing a flight test program. You guys are, are eight, the, the the latest aviation explorers. I don't know what else is going on in aviation terms that is as cutting edge as what you guys are doing. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it's been a pretty fantastic thing, and 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 part of the beauty of it is we're not using automatic systems like a lot of these other people are using. You know, people say, "Why do you do it as a unmanned vehicle?" And to program all the contingencies would, would be a challenge. Um, you know, we're doing basic stick and rudder just like someone in their uh, first uh, trainer. Right, right. Yeah, it's not exactly T or 233 that you're flying, but yeah. You, you mentioned earlier about the visibility out of uh, the Perlan because you've got the, the, the round windows on the side because it's, it's a pressurized aircraft. How does that work for takeoff and landing? You know, for the takeoff, I use mainly the eye windows, two out the front. If you move your head side to side, you can uh, see more than you might expect. It's a little bit easier if you offset just slightly so you can see the center line. If you're exactly on center line, it disappears so you can't see the center line. But on takeoff, it's uh, pretty straightforward. We're just following the tow plane. Hmm. And uh, I put my head over to one side. I can see the side of the fuselage on the tow plane. Um, with the egret, we're using about a, uh, 70 meter rope on, uh, some of the other tow planes, we've actually used about a 95 meter rope. Um, that just allows you to get a little farther than the tow plane and, uh, easier to see them. And, and landing? On the landing, um, pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, we do a normal overhead pattern. Um, when you're turning final, you can actually see the runway out the top hatch. You know, the top hatch is transparent. And uh, the key is getting lined up. Well, once you're lined up on final, um, then it's just a matter of, uh, you know, observing the runway. Um, in the flare, we cheat a little bit. The, the LX9000 GPS has actually been pretty good. So we kind of use that to help us uh, judge our flare height. <laughs> but, uh, really that's straightforward yes it's that that precise that you can use the lx to judge your flare height yes yeah on the agl function huh yeah <laughs> we use it as a backup we don't use it as our primary flare height you know once in a while it's off but sure uh, listen you mentioned earlier you're going back again in the next uh month or so for their winter which is when the the vortex is at its at its peak you're hoping to break 90,000 on this next trip? Yes, the Perlin is designed to go to 90,000. Um, our coffin corner where our stall speed and V&E cross is about 96,000. Mm -hmm. But 
that would require you to be in straight and level flight, just exactly at stall speed. If we limit ourselves to 90,000 feet, that gives us some margin so that we can uh, turn when we need to to stay in the wave. Is it hard to stay in the wave down there because of the speeds? It hasn't been. Um, at you know 76,000, we had like 200, a little over 200 knots true airspeed. The wind speed is about 160 knots, so <laughs> you, had, you had to do a small zigzag, right. but it wasn't huge. And uh, you know the area of lift is relatively large, so uh, so no, it was a. In fact, we originally left the wave, or intended to leave the wave to come home, and got in lift. We ended up doing our high point during our recovery. So, hmm. now, you mentioned earlier it's it's there, there's no cloud, right? You're not seeing any lenticular clouds or wave clouds forming because it's so dry. Is that right? At those very high altitudes, we've seen some spectacular clouds at lower altitudes. Mm -hmm. um, on this particular day, there were clouds over the mountains, you know, down in the 10,000-foot range or so, but there were no markers, say, at the altitudes we were flying. Hmm. Jim, are there any plants that take Perlan up into the northern hemisphere? I mean, I, I've been up to up of the Yukon and the Alaskan border up there, number of years back and I remember looking up at the sky thinking wow I would love to be able to fly up here because I remember seeing these high altitude wave clouds and you know there's no glider flying going up there have you guys considered going up into that part of the world um we will you know it's all a matter of uh, money and time um we're all volunteers but taking the container to Argentina and paying for lodging and all the sundries and stuff is expensive. So we have enough money for one trip to Argentina, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be out of the question to uh, you know, do some experimenting in the Northern Hemisphere. One beauty of Southern Argentina is that El Calafate is about 80 kilometers downwind of the Pacific Ocean. So it moderates the surface temperatures. Even in their heart of winter, the temperatures are between, it's, when we get there in August, they're typically like 3 degrees C to minus 5 to 10, as opposed to going to you know, northern Alaska. Yeah. When polar vortex is working, you might be seeing you know, minus 30 or 40 yes, C on brutal, the ground. Brutal, yeah. So, so in that respect, it's easier for us. And I'm not sure you know, if you're going to Alaska, um, what time of year did you see these high lenticulars? Uh, it was around March, April. Okay, okay. A little bit yeah. warmer, but still, uh, by the time you get to altitude, it's not pretty, yeah. Well, at altitude, it doesn't matter so much because, as I mentioned, the pressurization keeps the leaks out, and... So your comfort level's pretty good. Yeah, we're wearing electric underwear and electric insoles on the high flight, it was warm enough. I did not have to use electric underwear, just the insoles. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have that available if need be. So, but but the ground handling, you know, if it's minus thirty out, yeah, 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 the ground handling would be brutal. You know, potentially like downwind of the Ural Mountains in Russia, or in Sweden, downwind of the mountain range between Norway and Sweden. Right. Those are their potential sites for high flights in the northern hemisphere, but during the period when the polar vortex is good, you know, it'd be really brutal on the ground. 
yeah. You know, if you had a if you had a nice heated hanger, and it wasn't too far to the runway where you could just kind of set things up. Although, you know, one trouble is if you heat something up, and then you take it outside, you tend to get uh, condensation on it. So, right, it, it was your be, nice, yeah, <laughs> it'll freeze up right away, and then you're talking about getting that off the wings before you can fly. Exactly. So, so anyway, El Calafate turns out to be an excellent place for our needs. Sure sounds like it. How did you start out? How did you become a glider pilot and why, uh, yeah, seems like you're still passionate about it. Yes, yes. Well, growing up, my father was a B-17 pilot during World War II. And uh, so he, he was always talking about flying. So I got interested in flying. And uh, when I was, I don't know, maybe about 13 or so, my grandfather used to give us uh, National Geographic magazines and there was an article about flying gliders, Carl Streetie flying up and down the ridges in Pennsylvania. Right, right, right. Yeah. And they go, I'm going to do that. And I went to the Air Force Academy. They have a gliding program. So I got involved in their gliding program, soloed in the 233 in 1971, and became a cadet instructor. So I flew like, I don't know, 850 flights, mainly in the backseat of a 233. <laughs> before I graduated. Right. And then I went off and uh, you know, Air Force pilot training. I flew F-4s. I was an F-5 aggressor pilot and went to uh, test pilot school and bought a 126 and uh, did a couple 126 nationals, got my diamond. Really? Altitude. Yes. Yes. And then, uh, and then so I got LS-4 and just kept flying. So now I've got over, I don't know, 6,800 hours or so in gliders and uh, have had a lot of fun. I, you know, the online contest was a fantastic uh, thing for me. I yeah. Think. I was world champion, I think, six times in distance and eight times in speed. So that's been fine. You know, Jim, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I will be watching very carefully when you guys are back down there in July when you're starting to do these uh, record attempts again. And I just wish you all the best and safe safe flying and uh really looking forward to hearing the the good news that you've broken that record again well thank you harry you know we've got this uh, excellent website perlinproject.org and the people that might be interested in seeing the virtual cockpit can sign up there so they get a notice when we're flying wonderful good luck and uh we will be watching thank you harry okay take care jim bye 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 Pearland Chief Pilot Jim Payne spoke to me from Minden, Nevada. Go to pearlandproject.org to learn more about the project and follow Jim as he attempts to break the 90,000-foot mark. Now a quick note about our sponsor, Fox One Corporation, the place to go for all your gliding avionics, instrumentation, and software needs. And if you live in Canada, this is also where you can buy a new Shemp Hearth glider. I wish. Now, Dave Springford is the man behind Fox One Corp. He's a world-class competition pilot and has represented Canada at many international gliding events. So get in touch with Dave at foxonecorp.com and talk to him about your needs. That's foxonecorp.com. <laughs> We've all heard the tired old trope about the most dangerous thing about gliding is driving to the airfield. Well, it's not that gliding isn't safe, it's just that there's an inherent risk that needs to be actively managed. 
Richard Carlson is a highly experienced glider pilot and chairman of the Soaring Safety Association, which is part of the Soaring Society of America. I've reached Richard in Washington, D.C. So, Richard, welcome to The Thermal. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Richard, let's get right into it. One of the things I want to talk to you about is the gliding community at large. How safe are we and which areas need improvement from, from your point of view? So, gliding is inherently safe, um, but there are certain threats that we have to look at. And what we're trying to do in the world of soaring and soaring safety is to identify the risks and manage them effectively. Uh, and so the biggest threats and risks that we see right now are um, low-altitude maneuvering, and that includes uh, dealing with things like rope breaks at low altitudes, uh, landing in the pattern and making uncoordinated turns, and also thermaling at very low altitudes. Forty uh, percent of the fatal accidents in the United States occur from gliders impacting the train in the stall spin condition, and that is entering a stall spin at low altitude, and it does not matter if you are taking off, landing, or trying to scratch away from a low altitude. These, these sound like aircraft classic uh, gliding issues. I mean, I've been hearing about these kind of issues for decades. I guess the idea is with the, the right kind of training is to bring awareness to that and bring the numbers down. Is that And is that where the Soaring Safety Foundation comes in? Uh, yes, it does. And yes, while these numbers are, are uh, have been around for a long time, most of the focus has been on the pattern and landing. You'll always hear about people making the, the uncoordinated turns, getting their turn from base to final and stall spin in from there. You very rarely hear about uh, stall spin accidents from people trying to thermal at altitude, or stall spin accidents that occur after a 200-foot rope break. Yet those are just as dangerous and deadly as the uh, inadvertent stall off of your turn, skinny turn from base to final. So we've been trying to educate our community on these activities, why they occur, and what we can do to train our pilots to recognize the threat and how to mitigate it effectively. So talk to me about some of that training. How do you reach out? I mean, you know, the United States is a, is a big country. How do you reach out to the, the pilot population? So we have three main outreach programs that occur where we have people in person visit. Uh, one is our site survey program, which is modeled after a program in Sweden, where we'll send someone out who's experienced in gliding and running operations to spend a day at a club and look at what they're doing. Um, are they making decisions because that's the way they've always done it or because they put some co concentrated thought into uh, what are we doing? Are we doing things right? Are we doing things wrong? Are we just going through the motions? And with that, we can have a first set of eyes who look at the things and say, hmm, maybe you need to be go think about this aspect of your operation because you're getting into a dangerous area. You're not considering all the right risks right, or looking at the wrong rewards. Because some of these clubs, or if you've you know got a membership that's a small membership, they, after a while, can't see the forest for the trees. So I imagine having an objective third party come along can can potentially make a big difference. It can, and it doesn't mean just a small club. It could be a very large club, which then has a lot of inertia. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way I was taught. This is the way we, they were taught. 
everybody does it that way without really considering the implications of what they're doing. But you've got the site surveys, and I noticed on your website you also have uh, safety seminars that uh, you bring out to clubs. We do. So safety seminar series was born when we looked at uh, most of the clubs in the United States. We'll do a spring safety seminar. And attendance at most of these things is very minimal because it's the same old people telling you the same old things, and there's very little variety. So we, again, bring a fresh face, and we will charge a flat fee, and we will send someone around the country to give a presentation, uh, tailor it to the needs of that organization. If they've had some kind of incidents or issues, we can address those. And we can also then introduce... uh, Our main topic for teaching, which is looking at how do we use scenario-based training and emulate what the airlines and the military has done in their training programs to better prepare our pilots to be thinking about decision-making skills in addition to the mechanical skills needed to fly the aircraft. Can you give me an example of that? Um, Sure. The classic one that I use is imagine one of your club members shows up with a trailer, and inside that trailer is an ASW-20. The pilot is relatively new. They have never flown an ASW-20 before. They open the trailer up. Everybody comes around and oohs and ahs, and the pilot starts telling you about this retrieve. They just got the glider yesterday. They... um, had trailer trouble, so they didn't get home until 4 o'clock in the morning. It's now 10 o'clock in the morning. It was an hour drive to get here from their home to the glider club, and they want to go fly because it looks like it's going to be a really good soaring day. That's a scenario. What do you do? Do you say, great, let's go fly, or you put the brakes on and say, wait a minute, you are really fatigued. You're probably mentally and physically unable to fly this glider and your risk is going through the roof. How do we get a program that allows you to have a productive day but not increase the risk of you making a terrible mistake trying to land this glider on your very first flight because you're fatigued and exhausted? That's a really interesting example, but it also goes back to the training where that, that pilot, I mean, you know, hopefully his colleagues would stop him from flying, but it goes back even further. That pilot never should have shown up with the intention to go flying in the first place. That's correct. But the pride of ownership, the uh, issues that, you know, running on adrenaline, I really want to fly this, I just got it, I'm really proud. All these things factor into your decision-making in addition to all those things that you thought you were trained on. We thought we had trained you on as instructors. You're now on your own or with the friends and colleagues in your club and we all need to look out for our, our, each other and make sure we don't allow our friends and family to go off and do silly things because, well, yeah, we, it, it's probably okay. And that's what our good flying friends are for, right? Looking after each other. <laughs> I've seen it at my club. Exactly. That's what they're for. So our last outreach program is our flight instructor refresher course. Um, we have an FAA-approved class that runs for two days where we will renew a flight instructor certificate. We have focused this class on gliding, and we use extensively uh, the scenario-based training that I just talked about to train our instructors on how to use this technique effectively. 
Uh, I'm tired of standing up in front of a group and lecturing them for two straight days and giving them PowerPoint slides to death. I give them a scenario and say, figure out what the problem is and how are you going to fix it in your organization. And that leads to a 15 to 20 minute discussion amongst all the instructors talking about, well, how can I actually teach this element? How do I train my entire club to recognize this? So when my pilot shows up, they don't pull the glider out and say, let's go fly. They pull the glider out and say, I just bought this. I better, I can't fly today. Let me figure out how to use the new instruments that are in here and program the flight computer. Would you help me do that today instead of go fly yourself? Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what we're looking for. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds great. And so those, uh, are, yeah. those are our outreach programs. And then, as you've also pointed out, we have our website, and we've been trying to upgrade that to provide more uh, interactive training and, and other uh, information and, and tools that our pilots can use. So we've got videos online, uh, databases, uh, quizzes, uh, a whole bunch of information, safety reports, uh, everything that we can figure out we can put on, we can stick up on our website. I noticed you've got an incident reporting database. Uh, talk, talk to me about this tool and why, why you guys think it's important. So inc incidents are pre uh, predictors for accidents. And so we all know that things occur and nothing happened, and so you kind of forget about it. But it's a great teaching moment for those who can see what's going on and step in and say, wait a minute, we almost broke a glider there, we almost hurt this person here. Let's figure out how do we stop this from happening again. And so instead of looking at the accidents, I'm trying to get people to promote and tell me about the incidents that occur. So we can then start building up our safety programs to address the incident issues rather than waiting for them to become full-blown accidents. Now, one of the other things I noticed, uh, you know, it's it's plan for the worst, hope for the best. You've got emergency response plans. Why do you think each yep. club needs an emergency response plan? And tell me how they, what they are, how it works. So the emergency response plan uh, grew out of our site survey program, where uh, our member who's going around doing these site surveys looks at that and says, suppose something happens. Suppose when your tow plane crashes. Suppose there's an accident on, on your field. What are you going to do? Do you know the phone numbers to call to get your local uh, police? Are you just going to dial 911? Can they find you out at your glider port that's miles from anywhere with no street address? So we wanted the, the information out on a single page that can stick by the, the, the phone. And so it gives contact numbers and other pieces of information. What are the responders going to ask? What can you tell them? Uh, how do you actually go about reporting this? So it's just a basic tool to help people manage the unexpected because during that, that event, everybody's going to be running around thinking, oh, my God, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do? We have an emergency response plan at my gliding club. But going through your list, one of the things I noticed, which I found very interesting, was something called a crash toolbox. Tell me what that is. So the crash toolbox is a set of tools that could extract someone from wreckage. So if your tow plane crashes, it's probably flipped over. 
And so you're going to have to, to do something to help that pilot get ex- extractive cells from the wreckage. And so the, the trash cool kit includes things like big pry bars, uh, a uh, fire extinguisher, and other pieces of equipment that you could use to help someone extract themselves from that wreckage. Got to say, I think that's an absolutely excellent idea, and I will be uh, talking to the board of directors at my club and making sure that we get one of those on our uh, on our flight line bus because, uh, yeah, it's something you hope you never have to use, but it's a great idea. Right. Richard, we're starting to wind up on the, on the interview a bit here, but I wanted to ask you one final question. As, as chairman of the Soaring Safety Foundation, is there one kind of takeaway or bit of advice on gliding safety that you'd like to impart to our listeners? That's the same message I started with, that uh, gliding is inherently a intellectual task, and what we're looking for is how do we identify and manage the risks to make it as safe as possible. Um, the accident rates in the United States seem to be going down, um, but we can do much better, and we can do better by using the skills and knowledge that the airlines and the military have developed on making aviation safe, and that is to use scenarios and risk management skills to um, make good decisions and then train our pilots to make good decisions rather than just train them to move the flight controls around in the manner necessary to maintain coordinated flight. Richard, it's been a a real pleasure speaking with you. I hope we get to talk again, and uh, yeah, thank you very much. My pleasure. Richard Carlson is the chairman of the Soaring Safety Foundation, and he spoke to me from Washington, D.C. The Foundation's website is full of great articles and learning modules. There's something there for everyone from pre-solo to experienced cross-country pilot. Go to www.soaringsafety.org. That's www.soaringsafety.org. We've all experienced summer thunderstorms, you know, the wall of black that you can see approaching from the distance when the air is humid and full of energy, the kind of storm that makes everyone at the gliding club hurry to put everything away before the storm strikes. Well, sometimes pilots get caught out far away from the gliding club with an approaching cumulonimbus. Paul Chafe flies out of the Sosa Gliding Club in southwestern Ontario, about an hour west of Toronto. This is his story about confronting a monster storm. Monday dawns with a clear sky, and Yorg's weather bulletin is full of promise. I gulp my coffee, zip out to the field, find the LS4s up for grabs, and take AOS north for a 300-kilometer flight. The thermals aren't great, and the wind is high, so I fight my way north to York Soaring, all the while watching a huge CB blossom over Brampton. Well downwind and not a danger, but very impressive. I turn over York's hangar and come back. With the wind behind me, it's quick to Sosa, and with lots of day left, I head south to see if the Lake Erie Convergence line is working. It is, a little too well. There are three big storms down on the shoreline. There's no point in getting involved with those. Back on the ground, I get a text from Gabrielle. Call when you can. Eric saw a thunderstorm and is worried about you. I call and reassure them both that I'm not going anywhere near a storm, not now, and not ever. Tuesday morning, wake up, coffee, zip out to the field, arrive at 10. And at the flight line, Paul greets me with, how's the CB expert? I look at him blankly. You did 200K between all those thunderstorms yesterday, he elaborates. 
I did 200k, I acknowledge, but I didn't go anywhere near any storms. I want at least 30 kilometers between me and anything like that. I remember all too well the tale of the British K-21, destroyed by lightning under a clear blue sky. The day is looking to boom, with Q already popping at 10 and well developed by 11. Today is going to be awesome. Rob is towing and drops me in decent lift south of the field. I climb to 3300 and then raindrops spatter on the canopy. I look up. The queue I'm under doesn't look big enough to rain, but I abandon it and pick another one, just starting to develop. I manage to climb 200 feet before it starts to rain again. It rains harder. Should I land? The sky south looks good, so like the song says, I don't have to go home, but I can't stay here. I set course south. Though I don't know it, those raindrops are harbingers of the full-blown thunderstorm that is going to track just north of Sosa in half an hour. The clouds are torn and hard to read, the ceiling isn't high, and my zigzagging course is more about staying up than making distance. Over Brantford I catch a decent thermal, get to cloud base. By now the storm cell north of Rockton is huge and obvious, so now I can't even go home. Southwest towards Port Dover there's another massive CB dumping rain. But though I keep it in the back of my mind, it shouldn't come anywhere close to my intended path. Onward. Very soon it isn't looking good. The clouds are overdeveloped, the air is still, thermals absent. I soon get low and start looking for fields. Just outside Caledonia, I settle on one. It's got a crop, but it's more brown than green. Maybe cabbages? Anyway, it's aligned with the wind, and everything else around is full of seven-foot corn. I'm just about resolved to go into it, but as I get down to a thousand feet, I find a little weak lift. I start working it, going up a bit, down a bit. Just stick with it, have patience. The air feels dead, the sky is almost completely overcast now, but I'm not giving up until I have to. As I work it, I assess my field some more. There's a line of big power pylons marching past for abreast, just about where I want to turn base for a right-hand circuit. I should still be several hundred feet above them at that point, but why even come that close? I'll do a left circuit. There's a low spot about 80% of the way down the field, but it looks dry. No fence apparent, but telephone wires at the upwind end. I do all my downwind checks, less spoilers, just in case. Patience. Bump. Four knots up. I roll back into the turn, come around, and get an incredible eight knots as I come through the core. I smile as the altimeter rises. The air is vibrating. This isn't cycling. I know exactly what's happened. The outflow from that big boomer down by Port Dover has outrushed the front. A hundred million tons of cold air has hit the ground at 20 knots or more, compressed and rolled across the countryside, rocking trees and waving flags, until it's kicked up this lovely thermal, just in time to save me from outlanding. It won't last long, but I'm going to center this little honey, hit cloud base in five minutes flat, come home with an awesome story. And what the hell is that? That is a storm, not 30 kilometers away, but four, no make that three, and tracking towards me fast enough that I can see the rain line advance. I haven't hit a thermal kicked up from a distant outflow. I've been riding the upcurl from the downburst brought down by the rain. Forget climbing away, I need to get on the ground. Now. I level out, scan north and west for something, anything I can make it to that's farther away from this beast. I'm acutely aware it can swat an airliner out of the sky, let alone me. The only other option is the river through Caledonia, and I'm not quite that desperate. The rain line is coming fast and I visualize the absolute minimum circuit size I can get away with. I roll to the high key, which is unfortunately a kilometer towards the oncoming storm. Just one more tiny tweak to the circuit plan. I've flown exactly two flights with Scott McMaster in the aerobatics program, and on the second one I did a high energy approach. Okay, technically Scott flew it while I watched and took notes. 
I'm not exactly expert, but speed and controllability are now paramount, and so this will be my first ever high energy circuit. Airspeed will be 70, and if I have trouble with turbulence, I'll kick that up to 80, or more. Just keep the stick forward, I tell myself. Everything will happen fast, just keep the stick forward. The rain hits as I turn onto downwind, pounding down, smacking the canopy like gravel getting poured on a cheap tin roof. ZCA drops like a rock, very opegged all the way down. The streaming water makes it hard to see, but I sure can see the ground coming up, so fast it feels like I'm landing the space shuttle. That's still a glider, right? Extra height on final is not going to be a problem. Stick forward, keep the speed high. Enough height for final though, that is going to be a problem. This will be a high energy, abbreviated circuit. I roll onto base early, and even then I'm low, too low. Also too tight to the field considering the hefty crosswind from the storm now behind me. As I transition to final, I'm below the level of the trees at the right hand edge of the field, with the inner wing tipped just a wingspan over the ground. Nose up, keep turning. At all costs, I have to keep that wing out of the dirt, but the trees are coming up fast and I still have a lot of angle to get through before I'm lined up with the field. Nose up and keep turning, but the crosswind isn't helping, and if I die in those trees, my last words are going to be, oh fuck. Finally, I'm lined up, crabbed hard against the crosswind, and I get the spoilers open. The crop isn't cabbages, it's tobacco, and it looks a lot higher here than it did from a thousand feet up. What's the saying? Don't land in corn because corn will kill you, and don't land in tobacco because the farmer will kill you. Too late for that now. The furrows are deep, and I pick one and try to fly along it as I sink down, kick it straight, flare. ZCA bumps down and all I see is leaves and water, with a rollout so short it feels like a carrier trap. Down. Not a moment too soon either, as the torrent redoubles and thunder rumbles overhead. The storm is cursing my escape. No point in getting out of the plane to get soaked, so I just sit there, take a deep breath, let the adrenaline fade. I text Gabrielle, down safe. She texts back, Toronto has heavy rain and lightning. Here too, ma chère, here too. The rain pounds down, thunder echoes. I eat my snack, drink some water. My world is reduced to a sea of tobacco leaves, seen blurrily through the water streaming over the now fogged canopy. It's kind of peaceful, really. My respite only lasts 10 minutes before the rain passes, not surprising given the speed the storm is moving. My thoughts turn to angry farmers and the swath of destruction I've just cut through this field. How much is a tobacco plant worth anyway? More dollars than cents, I imagine. I get out to the post-storm quiet. The air is cool, the wind is calm, everything smells fresh. ZCA is nestled perfectly in the furrow, embraced by two rows of tobacco plants that reach just to the underside of the wings. Miraculously, not one is damaged. Even the main wheel track is gone, already erased by the rain. It's as if I hovered it in UFO style. The farmer won't be angry after all. The bottom line is, any landing you can walk away from is a good landing. If you can fly the aircraft again, it's a great landing. I walked away, ZCA wasn't hurt, this was a great landing. But that wasn't me, that was luck. The radar registered just one millimeter of rain per hour where I was. In the core, it was 100 millimeters. Somewhere between 1 and 100, the loss of visibility and the power of the downdraft would have made controlled flight impossible. I learned a lot about weather, about the plane, about how quickly an emergency unfolds, but the real lesson is about my own character. Two days ago, I promised Gabrielle and Eric I would never go near a thunderstorm. Yesterday, I was in one. Today, I'm looking up at another sky full of towering Q and massive CB. My feeling isn't never again, but I want more. Not more flight and thunderstorms, that would be crazy. But more flight, more surge and lift, more kilometers sliding beneath my wings, and yes, more of the calculated risk that comes with these things. 
Pilots in general don't lack ego, and glider pilots trend to the high end of that scale. I try to balance mine with a humble appreciation of my own limitations in the face of this incredible thing that we do. Even legends have died in the cockpit, and I am no legend. I'm just a guy who is lucky enough to fly, sometimes lucky enough to soar, and this time lucky enough to land. Fly safe. That was Paul Chafe reading his short story, Downburst, about his encounter with a massive thunderstorm in southwest Ontario. That's it for edition one of The Thermal. I'll be back next month with another show that will include a fascinating interview on combat gliders used on D-Day and Operation Market Garden. It's the 75th anniversary of those operations. There will also be a first-hand account of a glider pilot who didn't let his disability stop him from reaching for the sky. And that's all on the next edition of The Thermal. New shows will show up on the first Saturday of every month. Remember, if you like this podcast, go online and give The Thermal a thumbs up. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Please let your friends know about The Thermal and get them to download the show on iTunes. Later this summer, The Thermal will also be available on Google Podcasts. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at thethermalpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's thethermalpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate, and thanks for listening to The Thermal.